Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does on the occasions when we're talking about stuff in the studio, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. <laughs> that's a good one. Thank you. That's yeah. that's that's a that's an oldie that I'm going back to there. Yep. But um, today we wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of micropayments and microtransactions, and there are going to be some other. Uh, related topics that fall into this mm-hmm. um, because we're talking about, you know, spending little amounts of money for something in return, usually some web content. That's really where micropayments kind of came out of. That's what the concept grew out of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to really understand this, um, you know what I think we're going to need to do? What's that? Something we haven't done in a very long time. The polka? No, we need to get into the Wayback Machine, and I just happen to have it right back here in the corner. It's a little dusty. Um, it looks like Josh Clark has drawn Wash Me with his finger on the dust. Well, that doesn't matter. All right, all right. Pile in. Let's go. Let's see. I'm just going to I'm gonna set this to uh, 1992. Let's go to 92. Okay. All right. And here we are in 1992. I was still in high school back then. I was still in college back then. I went to the Governor's Honors Program that year. Anyway, but here's... Those fools. 92. So so the web mm-hmm. is just just a baby oh, yeah. right now, right? People, people don't know really about the web. Yeah. The I only, mean, in general. Yeah. People at CERN know about the web. Yeah. But outside like, of CERN, not that many people know. So at this point, the web is nothing but potential, mm-hmm. right? We have no idea where it's going to go from here. In fact, I can tell a story that back when I was uh, in college, so a couple years after this moment right now, uh, I thought the web was just a fad. And I looked at that and I said, huh, who the heck needs that, Telnet? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was using a Unix shell account. Yeah, see, to, in the Vax Lab. Yeah, I did the. I I would use a, a similar thing as well. And so, yeah, you know, you might telnet into another computer. You might use FTP, but you, you're like, what the heck? I, this web thing. That's for you know, that's for babies. Uh, just the way, same way I th- felt about graphic user interfaces when they finally started popping up. I'm like, oh come on, you can't memorize. 40 pages worth of commands to navigate through your operating system? Sure, but why would you? Right, yeah. No, I eventually came around, but it took a while. So anyway, at this point, no one really knows what's going to happen with the web. Mm -hmm. Uh, even companies that are looking at the web as the web is developing, we're just going to, uh, we're just going to stroll through time here. We'll, we'll, here, I'll just put the Wayback Machine on this wagon here, and uh, we'll just tug it along behind us until (laughs) we need to get back to modern day. We're just going to stroll through time and, as as time goes on and the web develops, companies start to look at the web as a possible place to make money. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But how do you make money on this new medium? Yeah, I mean, in the no- early 1990s, we're talking about uh, government and educational institutions. Yeah. Uh, big companies weren't really using the Internet. Right. And you know, even even much. private individuals weren't using it very much right. yet. So there was no need to worry about things like how are you going to monetize your website? Right. But by the time you get to around 94, you've already got some companies looking into the possibility of using the Web in a way to either supplement their advertising mm-hmm. uh, on television and, and uh, newspapers. So they would create a static website. You would go to this website, and it might have like a brief information page about the company and its products or services, and it never changed. Mm-hmm. It was very, very dull uh, for people who wanted to go back and check it out again. In fact, it almost felt like the web was like just going to be this massive magazine, and the articles would never change. Yeah. You know, but that evolved over time as well. Now, in the beginning, when companies started getting onto the web uh, and people started to think, hey, the web might be a way where I could actually you know, leverage this medium to make money. So not just companies, but individuals as well. Yeah. The question came up, how do I make money from this? And there were really two main schools of thought uh, on how to make money based on web content. Now, I'm not talking about selling products on the web because that's essentially using the web as a catalog. Yeah. Right. I'm talking about you are actually selling content on the web, uh, whether that is some sort of experience or it's a story or it's, you know, a, um, uh, a, a subscription to a news service, mm-hmm. anything along mm-hmm. those lines. Yeah. One way of paying for that is to sell advertising space on your website. Right. And another way of paying for that is to actually charge a fee for those particular little services or pieces of web content on a uh, a per instance basis mm. to the user a direct fee to the user right that's or, where sorry or like a monthly fee or a monthly fee a like subscription a fee yeah paywall is another ex- example and we're seeing that back in the uh, the modern day in fact uh, i think we've made our point about how the early web like no one yeah. knew what to do yet yeah i mean they, people weren't offering subscription rates right. at that time really and and you I mean, you they, did you did have people thinking about it, like uh, O'Reilly Media was doing that with the the GNN network. Mm-hmm. They were had a subscription fee, um, and of course, people like uh, AOL, the online uh, services that yeah. weren't part of the internet. I mean, you were paying a subscription fee to get their content, right? So I don't want to make it sound like nobody was doing that, but yeah, yeah. For for your average company, it just wasn't a thing yet. But you did have a lot of smart people at this time, we're talking about in the, the mid-90s at this point, coming up with ideas to create a micropayment system, mm-hmm. a system where you could pay just a few pennies sometimes, depending upon the content. I mean, it might be something as simple as you want to view this web page that has content on it that you're going to find valuable. It's 10 cents to do that. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of smart people looking at ways to possibly uh, standardize that. And including uh, people at IBM and you had people uh, at the, the World Wide Web Conference trying to come up with ways of doing this. Yes. Um, trying to find a way to standardize this so that people could take that opportunity, both on the the side of the provider and the side of the consumer, and to take advantage of that. Because mm-hmm. um, there are some problems, right? A lot of transactions online, and not even online, but in person, uh, have built into them a transaction fee. Right. 
Well, if you add a transaction fee on top of a micropayment, it seems ridiculous. Yeah, if you're you're spending fifty cents for the micropayment, right? And there's a let's say twenty cent fee on top of that. Yeah, you're you're thinking that I'm paying I'm paying nearly a fifty percent surcharge on top of what I'm already, you know, what the the cost of the content. Mm-hmm. Because the the people who are uh, like the credit card fee, for example, yeah, you know, that that's they're trying to make their money too, and on on something that small, it's a much greater. Uh, percentage of the actual transaction. Right, right. That's why so, a lot of places you go, like a restaurant or something, will say, you know, $10 minimum credit payment card purchase. Because yeah. it's too expensive for them, because they're the ones paying, taking care of the fee. Right. Of course, they, I'm sure they pass it along to you. Sure. They build it, they might build it into the actual price of the, uh, whatever the, the food items are. Yeah. But that, I mean, so you may, you may have seen exactly what we're talking about in a different context. context. Yeah. So, but yeah, if you were to walk up, uh, to a store and you yeah. wanted to buy this um, uh, like a, a something for ten dollars and they said all right well here's it's ten dollars that's what's going to cost you uh, but we have a transaction fee that we have to put on top of it mm-hmm. which is another five dollars and so that brings up the total price to fifteen dollars you might bulk at that and it, yep. I've I've actually had that experience uh, through a um, a a very large company that is a ticket broker. Mm-hmm. I think we can all guess what I'm talking about here. Yeah. But uh, I will not name names. But I was going to purchase tickets to go see um, uh, Metric because mm-hmm. I really wanted to see Metric. I wanted to hear Black Sheep played live. And so I went to uh, purchase the ticket, and the ticket cost $20. And I thought, $20, $20 to see Metric play. I'm not really familiar with all their music, but I love the song Black Sheep. I am willing to pl- pay $20 for this experience. The convenience fee and transaction fees – uh, added up to ten dollars, so yeah. it was fifty. Suddenly, it was thirty dollars. Right? Yeah, it was fifty percent of the ticket price was was on, added on top of it, and uh, yeah, that's when I said, you know what? I don't care how convenient it is or how it transacts. I am not going to do that. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's this problem, and when you get down to the micropayments, it 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 sounds like well, you know, you're just talking about pennies anyway, but people tend to to balk at that. And mm-hmm. and but companies do too. It's not just the consumers, but the companies as well. Because they're you know, they don't want to to give that experience to their consumers. They because it reflects poorly on them. You know, most consumers aren't necessarily gonna take the extra leap and say the the financial institution that is in charge of this transaction fee is the one I'm angry at. Mm-hmm. What they tend to think is Darn you, Company A! I can't believe you're adding this fee on top of this this price. I mm-hmm. I'm mad at you now. So it wasn't working out for anybody. Um, and so eventually, these really smart people who were working on standardizing the micropayments kind of let it fall. Mm-hmm. They you know just couldn't see a way of making it work. And plus, a lot of pe- a lot of companies at that point. We're looking to focus mainly on web advertising. Yeah. They, they decided between those two pathways, the web advertising method worked better for them than trying to charge people a per instance fee on their content. So, uh, let's, first of all, let's, let's jump back in the Wayback Machine, get back to modern day. Okay. Okay. So, uh, all right. Well, um, the people with the big hair staring at us. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get out of here. I'm, I'm not, you know, before the grunge music starts to play. <laughs> Okay, back in 2011. That feels better. Um, 
You know, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. <laughs> what, 2011? No, the, the, the Wayback Machine. Oh. I think it's the Chameleon Circuit that's doing that. But anyway, uh, so companies started to look at web advertising. It was an easier way in the long run than creating a micropayment system because since there wasn't a standardized approach, you know, you would have to invent your own mm-hmm. and then you'd have to secure it and encrypt it because you wouldn't want anyone to be able to uh, sniff out transactions and take advantage of uh, that and steal from either the company or the customers. That would be what we call a bad thing. <laughs> uh, so uh, people and companies started looking at, at web advertising and it's not an ideal situation either because web advertising itself is a little hinky, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're, you might be getting a fraction of a penny per click on your website, depending on how popular your website is and the advertiser that you're able to partner with. Yeah, but the desperation behind that, the, the desperation to make money on the part of the website creator um, led people to put banner advertising and you know, no, every nook and cranny they could find and start doing popovers and uh, pop-ups and pop-unders. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that creates a backlash, too. Right. Yeah, you get a point where the user experience is affected enough where the users say, hey, I don't like going to your site anymore because I feel like I'm being uh, bombarded with advertising and I can't actually see the content. And so uh, if your content isn't compelling enough then there's no reason to go to that website. So, I mean, there's there's this delicate balance you have to make. And mm-hmm. and there are some companies that do this really well in the sense that they have a good reputation. They consistently put out content that people find valuable, however you want to define that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't you – know, I might not necessarily find it valuable. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily go to a celebrity gossip site, but a celebrity gossip site might be very, very popular and therefore might be a, a, uh, a desirable – site for advertisers to put their ads on and you might be able to get a pretty good click rate uh, and a a pretty good uh, amount of money per click when you negotiate with that advertiser. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading a a couple of essays by Clay Shirky, who basically in in the early 2000s was arguing that micropayments just don't work. Yeah. Um, I think it could be argued that time has proven him Right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it, it can work in specific instances, right? Yeah, but yeah. that's part of it, though, is that uh, there's an assigned value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for things like luxury goods, like a, um, a high-end sports car mm-hmm. or brand-name fashion clothes, yeah. there is a perception of value that this pair of jeans is worth more than that pair of jeans because it has this label on it. Mm-hmm. So it means you have money to spend. It means, you know, it, it means something to people. The brand means something to people. Um, and so people might be more willing to spend more money for that particular thing than the other. But the thing is, with micropayments finding a way to assign a value to this very small thing that costs a very little amount of money it's it's a, a matter of perception and you have to figure out am i willing to pay a dollar 50 for this or geez it's only a dollar 50 it can't be that good yeah it, it it's a it's a weird circular it's strange argument and it yeah it is strange it's very psychological it has has almost nothing to do with actual economics or technology. It has more to do with the way we think and the way we ascribe value to something. And 
Another part of the problem is that so much of the content on the web is free. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've conditioned ourselves to expect when we go to the Web and we go to a website, we're going to have free access to that information. And we just that's kind of how we assume it. And then when we encounter something like, let's say, uh, The Wall Street Journal and you hit an article where you only get that first paragraph and it says in order to get the rest, you have to subscribe. I'm wondering what the bounce rate is on that website. How many people say, you know what, I can find content about this story somewhere else. It's not going to be the Wall Street Journal, so it's not going to be that take on the content. And if that's the take you want, you may end up ultimately disappointed in wherever you go. But I wonder how many people are willing to to do that as opposed to breaking down and paying for that paywall mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of where that comes from is from the early days of the internet. Because mm-hmm. uh, as you'll recall, we were just talking about the uh, early 1990s was when the internet really started making a transition from government and university um, communications to a commercial entity, at least here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at, at that point, and, and there were online communities, places like The Well um, and other uh, sites that basically sort of adhered to um, those are things that created uh, the concepts like netiquette. Like, well, mm-hmm. you don't talk to people like this on the internet. If you're using all capitals, that essentially means you're shouting. Right. Um, articles, in- information on the internet should be free because the internet is a, you know, it's not owned by anybody. So anything that uh, is online should be free to you as, you know, once you pay your subscription fee to your ISP, you know, the information is, is available to anybody. Uh, you know, cause there were Usenet groups and, you know, gopher sites and all sorts of other things where, where you could find things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that started out. I mean, I think the early people who were there, um, really got the sense that this is the way it should be. Uh, the internet's a place where anybody can talk about anything and it's available for everyone. Mm-hmm. And companies are saying, well, we have responsibilities to our shareholders. We need to make money on this. And we have to find a way to recoup the investment that we're making in this new medium. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we're going to put advertising on it or charge a subscription fee or charge you per article. Right. Um, but I think that's where the conflict lies is that people who started using the Internet in that transitional period got used to the idea, too. And that and, and for a long time, people on the Internet have offered stuff uh, for free to get started. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. For the first two months, you don't have to pay anything or the first 10 articles or um, and the music subscription services that uh, like Mog and uh, RDO that just started making a certain amount of time available. Right. You know, to get you hooked on it. So you will pay the subscription fee or, or the per song price or whatever. It right. Is. So now we get into where micropayments and microtransactions actually do work on the Web. And, and well, like we said, they don't work in everything. It's not like. Um, I don't think the average web developer, when he or she is launching a website, is going to necessarily find a lot of success through the micropayment method. Even if you think, hey, this is a fair price for this content, and it's not a lot, like it might just be a, you know, 25 cents. Again, because of the psychological barriers we've talked about, both the idea of, oh, it's, if it's 25 cents, it can't be worth anything. Right. That, it's, it's crazy to think that something that is priced at 25 cents is somehow worth less than something you would find for free. Mm-hmm. But there's that perception. Um, you know, it's, it, 
let's but there are places where it does work like iTunes for example yeah uh, or Amazon uh, the Amazon Music Store the digital music store yeah where you're buying songs on a per song basis and you're talking about okay well I'm buying a song for you know anywhere between sixty nine cents and a dollar twenty nine right um, that's where it is working I mean that's that you would consider that a micropayment um, micropayment by the way is one of those terms that doesn't have a, a, a firm no. definition yeah yeah you don't really have a way of saying well anything under this price is considered a micropayment and anything over it is not a micropayment. Although, depending on <laughs> the financial institution you're dealing with, that could be defined. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, PayPal, I think, says that anything below $12 is a micropayment. Right. Um, but that's PayPal. You know, it's it's not like that's the, the definitive authority on what is and what isn't a micropayment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the model of buying uh, per song at 99 cents or, or somewhere around in that area has worked. You know, people have have bought into that, and uh, that's one of the cases where a micropayment approach has actually uh, paid off. And you know, that's kind of interesting to me. It's it makes sense in a way because you know we're used to buying music. Yes. Yeah, albums or even singles. You know, the, back in the old days, we used to buy singles all the time. Yes. And uh, either on cassette or on uh, vinyl. I have a few vinyl singles I left over from my childhood. I do too. Uh, not left over from Chris's childhood, but from mine. I was wondering uh, where those went. Yeah. I, I will make sure to get Hello Mudda, Hello Fada back to you as soon as possible. Please. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sometimes I like to, you know, spin records. That's one of my favorites. Uh, anyway, the, um, the, we're used to buying songs and we're used to buying music. So going to this micropayment model where you can buy individual songs, it, it appealed to a lot of people, including myself. You know, I had gotten to the point where I was no longer feeling like I was getting the album experience. Right. You know, which is where I would buy an album from a band or artist that I liked and listen all the way through. And that was like the experience I wanted. I wanted to hear the, the transition from song to song. And sometimes that actually created a, a, a more meaning for me or mm-hmm. I just wasn't interesting to hear how they crafted the songs and how they arranged them on the album. Mm-hmm. Like that was a big deal. And then eventually it started sounding to me like there were more and more albums that didn't really convey that experience to me as much and that it was more like hey there are a couple of really good songs on this album those also happen to be the singles and all the other songs are not that good and or at least i don't enjoy them as much so that gave me the the ability to buy specific songs from an album without having to get everything else that i may or may not actually like uh so i think a lot of people followed that they enjoyed that as well Mm-hmm. So we started seeing that actually applied in other areas besides just music. Uh, in games, it's actually fairly it, – it's becoming more and more common. Yep, and uh, not just and, – and that actually is very common on the social network games. Yes, the freemium games. Yeah, like uh, on um – on Facebook and and Google Plus, yep. you see, you know, games, especially Zynga. Zynga's well known for doing this. Yeah. Um, and I've played a couple of those games where I, I still think they're more like software toys than games, but I'm, you know, not going to argue that in this podcast. The thing is, um, you, you get to a certain point where you, it's like, yeah, you, you can do this and it will take all day. Or if you pay us a dollar, 
you can do this now and move ahead more quickly and you can get ahead past your friends. Look where they are. You can move ahead of them and it gets you this, uh, you're like, wow, a dollar. Is it worth a dollar to me to move forward? Cause I'm, I'm frustrated now. Um, that in, and in app purchases for, uh, Android and iOS, uh, which is the operating system for the, uh, Apple mobile devices. Um, that's become a, a very common thing. Of course, advertising, in-app advertising has been also. Uh, but a lot of, uh, not just games, but other enhancements and things for your, uh, uh, in-app, uh, you know, where you don't actually go to the, uh, the app store to purchase an add-on for your game. Um, you actually say, well, okay, this is a dollar and you'll get these extra screens or you'll get this extra benefit if you do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're, this model has the the freemium model has received a lot of criticism from gamers, um, particularly freemium games that that spawned out of uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. A lot of those games, um, the 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 problem is that gamers will say that the that the game is designed so that you pay to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, in yeah. Other, in other words, in other words, the the model, the financial model, the game is based on. Uh, is amoral, right? It's not, it's not, it's not immoral. It's amoral. There's right. not a good or a bad necessarily. It's how you apply it. Uh, but that in the way that it's applied in these games is that it lets people who have discretionary income get an advantage over people who are, you know, just playing the game to try and, you know, use the best strategy that doesn't necessarily involve pouring money into it. It's, it's not too different. From using a cheat code in a game in order to get advantages, right? Right. It's just instead of a, you, instead of entering in a cheat code on your computer or in your console, you're entering in real money to yeah. get that advantage. Mm-hmm. And so some people would argue, hey, this game is not really about skill; it's about who's going to pour enough money into it to get the advantage over everyone else. And really, where is that? How is that really a game at that point? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, to, just to clear it up, too, there will be things where you might be battling uh, an adversary in the game and uh, you can do that all you want to. And eventually you may win or you may not. But uh, if you're willing to cough up a dollar fifty, you can have this weapon added to your storehouse. And that might be the difference between winning and losing. Right. Or you might uh, be able to. Uh, buy certain kinds of buildings for your town, which will enable you to create more uh, fighters or, you know, better weapons. Or develop faster technologies. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah that kind of thing. It's not like you're saying, if I pay $5, I'm going to win the game. Yeah, I, I just wanted to clear that up so that people understood. Right, they right. didn't understand it's, what we yeah, were talking about. Yeah, a lot of these are multiplayer games as well, where yeah. you're playing, you're both cooperating with and competing against other players. Sure. And, uh... And so that gives you the incentive to try and uh, and out outwit your opponents, which, you know, why outwit them when you can outbuy them? Uh, you know, like if if it means that if you spend you know ten bucks on this game, uh, then you get a huge advantage over other people. For some people, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a compelling reason. Right. And you know, I can't say whether that's right or wrong. I mean, you're playing the game for free, and like there are plenty of games out there. I've spent. Lots and lots of money buying certain games, right? Right. And I, I don't blink an eye. 
you know, I, I'm, I think, hey, I want this new Xbox 360 game. It's going to be $60 when it comes out. I'm going to go buy it. And I, I pay 60 bucks and I come home and I play. Now, I'm not being given any specific advantages, you know, or disadvantages. Uh, it's just playing the game as is. Uh, I might eventually buy downloadable content. And we'll get into that too, which is related to micropayments, but I don't, you know, that's, what I purchase is what I get, and that's the game. Um, playing the freemium games, you know, it may be that I, I would spend a fraction of that sixty dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'd only be spending five bucks just to get this one thing. But I, again, it feels it feels cheap to me. Not cheap in the sense of hey, that's a great value, but cheap in the sense of I feel like I'm cheating. <laughs> well, here here's okay. I, I've seen people complain about the the freemium type games, you know, because they say, well, they're free. And the thing is, though, that the, the companies behind them are in the business to make money. Yes. Um, There's so I nothing have a, wrong with that. I have a difficult time begrudging the freemium game creators from restricting some content to people who pay for it because simply because they're in it for the money. Now, if Henry wants to build a game in his spare time that he just wants to share with the world and wants to make it free... And doesn't and have any like paid content in there at all. Yeah, I mean it's then that's the thing. I mean, or if he wants to make a few bucks, but the thing is, I mean, you have to. I think it's one of those things that it's important to look at both sides of. Now, sure. on the other hand, um, I feel like I'd rather go ahead and and I'd like to know what it is up front. It's like, well, you know, if you spent uh, let's say thirty dollars, you could have everything that's useful in this game. I'd kind of rather pay for it up front. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd rather, you know, spend the $50 on, uh, say age of empires and get all the weapons and all the buildings and all the stuff that I'm going to need to play the game against anybody. I'm going to play it against, uh, and have it come down to my strategy in the end. Uh, and the reason I'm getting pulverized rather than going, well, if I just spent the other $3, I could get that thing, but I really don't want to spend that $3. Yeah, and there are ways of implementing this that feel less less like a a, a cheap cheat to me than others. Yeah. So so the games that I'm I'm it's specifically Yeah, the games I'm specifically talking about are the games that are kind of like real-time strategy games. Mm-hmm. So things that fall into that category include and by the way, I'm going to mention a few game names here uh and all of them are Essentially identical. The concept behind the game is the same concept. The uh, graphics are different. Some of the gameplay elements are a little different, but the basic idea is exactly the same. Okay. So things like Ebony, uh, Dragons Mm. of Atlantis, Mm -hmm. Global Warfare, all of these games have the same basic concept. You create a city. You create buildings in that city that give you certain uh, abilities, and some of the things you need to build depend upon you having other buildings or, or research or whatever in place before you can actually start on them, like mm-hmm. especially military units uh, because there is a military component too. And you have to build mining uh, buildings, like yes. stuff, stuff that's farming out uh, resources, and you use those resources when you're building other stuff. There are hundreds of these type of games and their model tends to be hey if you want to speed up building this building pay us uh, you know this amount of money and then it'll instantly be finished or mm-hmm. if you want to speed your troops so that they attack your opponent before your opponent can react spend this much money and your troops will instantly get there yeah 
You know, that That's kind of thing. Cheatier. Exactly. That feels like you're playing the God mode in a, in a, in a video yeah. game. Yeah. Now, there's another way of doing this. You where, can tell I hadn't played those types of games. Yeah. There's another way of doing this where it's like role playing games, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, you can play the role playing game for free and there may not even be a cap on your character's level, um, so that you can play it until you hit whatever the maximum level is for everybody and you can play that game for free, but, you're not going to get access to certain areas of the game unless you pay money. Mm-hmm. And I don't have as big a problem with that because to me that's saying, hey, you know what? If you're willing to go through this experience and you know you're not getting everything in the game, but you're not also um, – you, you, it's not like when you pay money you're getting an advantage. You just get access to a different area. Mm-hmm. That seems less of a problem to me. Yeah. And uh, the game that I'm thinking of immediately from this was uh, Dungeons and Dragons Online. Yeah, yeah. Uh, D&D Online, it started out as a subscription-based game. So sort yeah. of like you know a lot of other multiplayer games that you'll find. Uh, but then it moved to free online play and just areas of the game were restricted. And if you wanted to be able to play a certain quest – you might have to actually purchase that quest. Mm-hmm. And um, if you couldn't purchase the quest, well, then you could play other parts of the game. You just, that area was off limits to you. Yeah. And uh, that didn't seem as big a deal to me. And it seemed like, I thought that's a pretty cool way to try and do it. Because if you like the game enough, you're going to say, hey, you know what? I really want to see what's back there because this is an entertaining game to me and I'm willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not, then, you know, you just you move on to do something else. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of leads us into the downloadable content area. It's, it's related. It's not necessarily a micropayment because sometimes a downloadable content game can be as much as a regular, maybe mid-tier game. Uh, I've spent probably around, I don't know, $20 for a piece of downloadable content to a game I already had purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also a way that, that companies are finding, uh, works when you're trying to sell, um, sells content on the web. Right. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of Xbox games that do this where you can purchase downloadable content. Actually, Xbox even adds another layer of complex uh, uh, analysis on top of this because in Xbox, you purchase games through the Xbox point system, mm-hmm. which means first you transfer your money, your dollars into Xbox points and then you use the Xbox points to buy stuff. So that that actually, you know, if you're buying something for 800 points, let's say, your mind doesn't necessarily automatically make the transaction of, oh, that means 800 points, that equals this many dollars. So it's a little different, right? That, I, that might be a way of trying to get away from that psychological barrier. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Because it, it's not easy to make that translation in your head. Right. So you're, so you're ending up, you're ending up purchasing stuff, but you're not having, you're not hitting that wall where you're thinking, Hey, wait a minute. This is $10. I'm not going to spend $10 on this. No, it's not $10. It's 800 points. Oh, 800 points. Yeah. I'll spend 800 points on that. Um, yeah, so there's that level of complexity too. Uh, downloadable content, I think, has been a pretty successful method of of doing the micropayment uh, model, uh, and you you see that also in games like the multi massive multiplayer games where you can pay to get uh, specific items that don't necessarily give you an advantage, but they give you your character a certain look. Yeah, like I've seen a lot of that on uh, uh, both on computer games and console games. And that seems to be working pretty well, too. So micropayments can work. It's just that it's interesting that if you look all the way back to the beginning of the web, there were thoughts about micropayments 
from the start, it just didn't, you know, it it didn't work on a broad spectrum uh, approach. Yeah, well, there there were there were the two pieces which we which we really covered, but in in a nutshell, uh, the two pieces being the uh, infrastructure needed to make it work. Yep. Uh, to make a secure transaction, and in, in the beginning, there were a lot of different models for that, and they didn't all work the same. Uh, and you have to make sure things are are um, are squared away. Um, I was actually uh, reading an article when doing my research for the uh, for the podcast um, by Max Zeladon at uh, uh, Bloomberg Business Week, who was saying that uh, you have to w- watch out for things like um, security risks, you know, stolen passwords, break-ins, like we've seen in the last year, um, you know, for other types of sites, um, and once. And that leads to the other part, which is the the mental acceptance of micropayments. Once you've established a value, a relative value for these these mm-hmm. very small transactions, and you've established that it's my money is going to be safe, it's going to get where it's supposed to go, and nobody else is going to hit my credit card for something else. Then you know it's just taken a while for the models uh, to catch on. I mean, I remember when iTunes, the idea of paying a dollar for a song, ninety nine cents per song, um, bothered a lot of people, primarily the recording industry. Um, you know, because suddenly it was it was broken down from the album. You could just buy individual songs. Yeah. Uh, now it's pretty straightforward. People don't really question a uh, dollar twenty nine. Of course, the price has gone up. Um, or or whatever you know uh, an older album hey you know it's it's fifty years old uh, let's say it's you know five dollars yeah um, you Although know you th- do these still... kinds of things are not uh, uncommon anymore yeah it's interesting though we do still find bands that resist having their sure. albums broken up into individual songs ACDC mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know and and I it's it's you could see this I think in uh, publishing. For ebooks, yeah, because people are still resisting. Well, if I have to pay uh, nineteen ninety nine for the hardback, why do I have to pay uh, you know nineteen ninety nine for the ebook or seventeen ninety nine? It's a, it's not a book. You didn't print it. You didn't yeah. bind it. You didn't yeah. ship it to me. Those those costs, where's the money going? You, you didn't incur those costs. Why should I incur them? Yeah, and that's and that, again we well we've touched on that before, but yeah, but that's I think you could see that though for sure. music it's established. They've, you know you got a price point. You have an idea of what's going on, and you're comfortable with it. Right. This is newer, and they're still fiddling with the prices. On yeah, them. exactly. And because and, they're fiddling with prices, and because you could have a company come in and undercut everyone else, it's still very much the wild west in that in that realm. Yeah, but I think that's an example of. Uh, sort of how online transactions and the idea of micropayments, it's like, yes, you have to establish a value. You have to establish a value for these things mm-hmm. and people have to become accustomed to, you know, the prices and the payment system. Yeah. There's a lot more to this topic that we could cover. We didn't even talk about micro lending, which is related to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, micro lending is another uh, example of uh, sort of a, a micropayments like system yeah. that has been fairly successful. Yeah. And uh, uh, Stuff You Should Know did a great episode about micro-lending. It's an older episode. If you guys have not heard that, first of all, you should be listening to Stuff You Should Know anyway because yeah. it's a great show. It is. Uh, but that particular episode in partic- is is very um, – a particular episode in particular? Yeah. yeah. That it's both repetitive and redundant. Um, that let me reiterate the uh, the episode is very very good and yeah. and stuff you should know even has their own uh, Kiva project um, mm-hmm. charity that uh, or micro lendings uh, 
a project that that was incredibly successful and continues to be very successful. So I suggest you listen to that episode and we'll probably do an episode on micro lending ourselves at some point and talk about kind of the technological aspect of it and how that whole model developed and how technology has really enabled that model to, to flourish mm-hmm. because it's one of those things that's much more difficult to do without the aid of the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in the political campaign for the 2008 elections and, and forward, uh, mm-hmm. and, and more recent in the United States, uh, a lot of the candidates were raising 20, $10 and $20 at a time, yeah. which wouldn't make a big deal to a candidate who needs millions of dollars to, in, in their, his or her war chest to attract voters. But when you have millions of people donating Ten or twenty dollars—that makes a huge difference. Yeah, you make and it I think up in gonna, That's going to be the norm now. Yeah, but you know, that's really when it kicked in. So and that's kind of a micropayment. It's not, you know, in the ninety-nine cents to two dollars to three dollars realm, but right. still, in terms of the big picture, it is. Yeah, Con- considering that you're talking about, you know, and when you think about political donations or or contributions to a campaign, you're usually talking about thousands of dollars. So yeah, it's it's and you know, it's it's difficult to implement that on a. Uh, non-technological basis. I mean, you have to have an army of volunteers marching door to door, yeah, and uh, and you know, risk being yelled at by yeah, you never people know who, who are get. who are who are supporting the other party. Yep. Well, we're gonna wrap this up. Uh, but if you guys have any suggestions for topics we should tackle, or if you have your own thoughts about micropayments, microtransactions, micro lending, that kind of thing, uh, you know how it works or maybe how it doesn't work, let us know. You can drop us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?